Thank you. Thankfully, you can hear me and it's uh, 9.30, so let's begin Sunday School. So good morning and welcome back. We're actually concluding today our look, <clears throat> excuse me, at the life of Joseph. And we are seeing in, we're seeing God bring to fruition his glorious purposes that he began with bringing Joseph down to Egypt. And before we get to today's lesson, just a few corrections are in order. Uh, last week in illustrating how we ought to be ready for sudden tragedies, I mentioned the death of Jonathan Edwards, that great American theologian, and the response of his wife to it. But I did confuse a few of the facts. Jonathan Edwards' wife's name was not Susanna, but Sarah. Uh, Susanna is actually the wife of Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon. So Sarah Edwards and her husband, Jonathan, died of a smallpox vaccination, not a tuberculosis vaccination. So apologize for that. I did get the contents of the letter right, though. And you can actually read that letter in full online. If you're so interested, just type in Sarah Edwards' letter to daughter and you will probably find it. But anyways, we've got a lot to talk about today. So we'll get right into the lesson after we pray. So let's do that now. Our Lord and God, we thank you for your word. And I pray... As we look at this just amazing thing that you did on behalf of your people in ancient times, God, that we would be affected as we ought, that we would learn to trust you, that we would learn to forgive, that we would be content in you no matter what circumstances we encounter and no matter who sins against us. I pray God you help me to be able to explain this, explain this well and accurately. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start off today with a question. What are the worst sins that people have done against you in your life? I know people have sinned against you. Maybe somebody tried to sabotage your reputation. Or maybe, God forbid, you were abused as a child. Or maybe somebody tried to lead you to believe a false gospel. I don't know exactly what it was, but what were the worst sins that people have done to you? And then what has been your response to these sins? Have you become bitter against God, against those who sinned against you, against others in general? Have you become fearful, cynical, ashamed? turning to sin and addictive substances and activities just to try and cope with what you've experienced? Or have you even sought vengeance against those who sinned against you? You're going to pay them back. Or have you forgiven them? Have, have you resolved in your heart that you will not hold this terrible sin that whomever it was did to you against them? Have you reconciled with that person when they came to confess their sin and when they repented before you? And have you sought to do that person good, that person who sinned against you in a terrible way? Have you sought to do them good, praying to God on their behalf and praying especially that God would be merciful to them and grant them repentance that leads to life and salvation in Christ? Now, you know that Jesus says a mark of those who are truly forgiven by God is that they forgive others. 
even for the worst sins, even for repeated sins, and even for sins which had consequences that lasted a long time. Now, why is this possible? Why is this even expected of God's people? A number of reasons, and I think the three chief ones are these. Because of the full satisfaction and contentment that we have in simply knowing Christ. If we have Jesus, what else do we need? We are free to forgive. Also, because of the greater forgiveness that we have through Christ for our sins against God and against others. We have that forgiveness. Can we not forgive others even for their worst sins? And also, thirdly, because of our trust in the perfect sovereign provision of God in this life, because God is sovereign, we can forgive. I don't know if you thought about this last reason too much, but you need to. Whatever sins you've suffered in your life, even the worst sins, they actually come from the sovereign hand of God. He could have prevented those sins from happening to you, but he did not. God is sovereign. But why didn't he stop it? If he's a loving God, is God actually cruel and unjust? Is he some kind of sadist? He just wants you to suffer. No, that is utterly blasphemous, utterly against what the scripture says. Exodus 34, 6 talks about how God himself declares he is full of loving kindness and truth, abounding in loving kindness and truth. He doesn't do it out of lack of love. Or maybe he's just incompetent, aloof, inept, ignorant of your situation and what would be best for you. He wants to help, but he just, just can't. Well, it's not that either. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. He is able and he cares. So why doesn't he stop it? The real answer as to why God ordained even the worst sin others have done against you is the same reason that we've been seeing these past few lessons and throughout the life of Joseph and really throughout the scriptures. What men and demons mean for evil, God means for good. Even the worst sins you've suffered have a good purpose, a transcendent purpose in the sight of God, and they will accomplish good for you in the end if you're in Christ. But do you believe that? And do you forgive because of that? Let's see how these truths about God's sovereignty and forgiveness show up in the life of Joseph in the account we're going to read today. So please take your Bibles and open to Genesis chapter 42. Genesis 42. We're going to be looking at several sections from Genesis 42 to 50 today. Just remember where we left Joseph last time. Oh, by the way, this is page 46 in the Pew Bible, if you're using that one. Page 46. But remember where we were with Joseph? After interpreting the prophetic dreams of Pharaoh, Joseph was exalted from imprisoned slave to prince over all of Egypt. 
Then seven years of abundance came upon Egypt, and Joseph wisely helped store up abundant provisions of food in the storehouses of Egypt. Then the seven years of famine came upon Egypt and all the surrounding lands. Everybody was running out of food, coming to Egypt to buy food from Joseph. Now, we ended off last time by asking, how are Joseph's brothers and his father faring in Canaan when it comes to this famine? That's where we pick up the account today. So look at Genesis 42, and we'll read verses 1 to 25. Genesis 42, 1 to 25. It says, Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. And Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? He said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place, so that we may live and not die. Then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them and said to them, you are spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Yet he said to them, no, but you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. But they said, your servants are twelve brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no longer alive. Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you will be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you, that he may get your brother, while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison for three days. Now Joseph said to them on the third day, Do this and live. For I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go. Carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your young brother to me, so your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, Truly we are guilty concerning our brother, because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not tell you, do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? How comes the reckoning for his blood? They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, but there was an interpreter between them. He turned away from them and wept. But when he returned to them and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. 
And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to restore every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And thus it was done for them. Well, let's make basic observations on what we just read. But it's in verses 1 to 2, Genesis uh, 20, or 42, that Jacob sends his sons to Egypt to buy food. Why does he do this? Verse 5 tells us the famine is in the land of Canaan also. Now notice in verse 4 who Jacob sends. He sends all the brothers except Benjamin, because Jacob was afraid that harm would come to Benjamin. Now Benjamin is the youngest, but what's the other important thing to remember about Benjamin? He's the only other son of Rachel, which means he's the only other full brother of Joseph. Notice in verse 6 that the brothers do come to Joseph since Joseph is the one in charge of distributing all the food in Egypt. What do the brothers do as they approach Joseph? They bow down with their faces to the ground. Ding, ding, ding. Why is this act significant by the brothers? Because of Joseph's dream. This is exactly what God foretold would happen. Joseph's family, and his brothers in particular, would one day bow down to him. And it's happened. And verse 9 tells us that Joseph also remembered the dream. Now, verses 7 and 8 tell us that Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. The phrase disguised himself in verse 7 does not mean that Joseph wore a disguise, but that he acted like a stranger to them. Verse 23 tells us that Joseph was actually speaking to them through an interpreter, though he could plainly understand what his brothers were saying. Now, why is it there that the brothers probably did not recognize Joseph in his appearance? Consider Joseph has become firmly integrated into the life, culture, and ruling structure of Egypt. He probably dresses like an Egyptian and looks like an Egyptian. It's also been a long time since he's seen his brothers. We get a little bit of time information in later passages we're looking at today. But in total, it's been 22 years since he's seen them. He was 17 when he left them, and 22 years have gone by. I'm sure he looks different than his brothers remember. So he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And verse 7 says, Joseph spoke to his brothers harshly. In verse 9, Joseph even accuses them of being spies trying to find out the undefended parts of Egypt. In verse 10 and following, in an effort to prove their innocence, the brothers give a full account of their origin and their family. In verses 15 to 17, Joseph seizes on some information they report about a younger brother. And he says that they're all going to be held captive until one of them goes to retrieve this younger brother and verify their story. In verses 18 to 20, though, after three days, Joseph reverses the ultimatum. And he says only one of them will be confined, while the rest of the brothers are free to return home with food so that they will bring their younger brother to Joseph. Now, certainly the brothers were not expecting this kind of ordeal when they came to buy food in Egypt. Notice their explanation for it in verses 21 to 22. They say, this has happened to us because of what we did to Joseph, our brother. 22 years has not erased the guilt for that sin. 
Now, verse 23 says they did not realize that Joseph understood what they were saying. And in verse 24, Joseph turns away from them and weeps, starts crying. But then also in verse 24, Joseph composes himself and he binds Simeon, one of the brothers, before the eyes of all. And then he sends the rest on their way. There's one little surprise, though, in verse 25. Joseph orders his men to give back to the brothers their money and to put it secretly in their grain sacks before they leave. Now, these are some important observations on the text, and they raise certain questions of interpretation, but we're going to hold off on those questions because answering them will be easier once we see a, a greater sweep what happens between Joseph and his brothers. So we're going to keep on going in Genesis. And for the sake of time, we're going to need to summarize the next few chapters. When the brothers leave and later discover that their money has been returned, they are dismayed. And they say to one another in Genesis 42:28, what is this that God has done to us? When they return to Canaan, they report to their father Jacob what has happened. But Jacob refuses to let them take Benjamin down to Egypt. He says in Genesis 42, verse 38, If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. I'm going to go to the grave if he dies. Thus, Simeon is left captive in Egypt. But in Genesis 43, the food that the brothers brought back eventually runs out. And Jacob tells his brothers that they have to go back to Egypt for food. But Judah speaks up, and he says that they can't go back to Egypt without Benjamin because of what Joseph had said. And then notice Genesis 43, verse 9. Judah says, I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. So here Judah is taking the lead among the brothers, and he says, I'll be responsible for Benjamin. Now, how had Judah taken the lead previously? What did he do with Joseph? He was the one who suggested selling Joseph to the Midianite traders. But now he's volunteering to be responsible for Benjamin. Jacob acquiesces, and he allows them to take Benjamin. It has to be done. So the nine brothers take Benjamin, they take money, and they take the money that had been previously returned to them, and they go down to Egypt. When Joseph sees the brothers with Benjamin, he arranges for them all to dine with him at his house. Once there, the brothers explain to Joseph's house steward that they mysteriously found the money that they had brought previously in their grain sacks, and they had brought that money back to be returned. But then notice what Joseph's steward says to them in Genesis 43, verse 23. Genesis 43, verse 23, the steward says, Be at ease. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. A steward then reunites Simeon with them all. And when Joseph arrives to have lunch with them, they bow down to him again and give him a gift. Joseph then asks them about their father and about Benjamin. And notice what he says in Genesis 43, verses 29 and 30. 
notice what's recorded there. It says, as he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, may, may God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out, for he was deeply stirred over his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. Joseph recomposes himself again, and then he serves the meal, sitting by himself, apart from his brother, but having the brothers sit in order of birthright. And then look at verse 34, Genesis 43, verse 34. It says, Joseph took portions to them from his own table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. So they feasted and drank freely with him. Brings us to chapter 44. At the beginning of Genesis 44, Joseph instructs his house steward in how to send his brothers away. Joseph, again, returns all of their money, and he fills their bags with food and provision. But he also has his steward place Joseph's silver cup in Benjamin's sack. After his brothers leave, Joseph sends his steward after them to accuse them of stealing Joseph's cup. The brothers deny that they stole the cup. And look at what they say in Genesis 44, verse 9. With whomever of your servants it, the cup, is found, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's slaves. Joseph's steward responds in the next verse by saying, Now let it also be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and the rest of you shall be innocent. To the brothers' horror, the cup is then found in Benjamin's sack. So they all tear their clothes, and they return to Joseph's house in Egypt. When they see Joseph, they fall to the ground again before him, the third time that they've bowed. And Judah says, in verse 16 of, Gen of chapter 44, Judah says, What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? And how can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. But Joseph replies, no, only Benjamin will be enslaved. But Judah speaks up again. Judah says, or Judah explains that Benjamin is beloved by his father. And if Benjamin does not return home, their father will die in sorrow. And Judah declares how he also became surety for Benjamin to bring Benjamin back to his father in safety. So notice what Judah proposes in verses 33 and 34 of chapter 44. Judah says, Now therefore, please let your servant, that is, let me, remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father. So Judah says, let me be enslaved and not Benjamin. Now here's where we want to jump back into the narrative and look at it more closely. Look at Genesis 45, and we'll read verses 1 to 15. Genesis 45, 1 to 15. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with Joseph, or no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. 
He wept. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, Please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler of all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. And do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will also provide for you, for there are still five years of famine to come, and you and your household and all that you have would be impoverished. Behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. You must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen. And you must hurry and bring my father down here. And he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. He kissed all his brothers and wept on them. And afterwards, his brothers talked with him. Now, how amazing is this, right? Let's make some observations. Notice verse 1 says that Joseph could contain himself no longer. He sends out all the Egyptians and he, then he starts to weep and he weeps so loudly that all the nearby Egyptians heard it. Word even reaches Pharaoh. And then Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers. He immediately asks them, is my father still alive? Now notice verse 3, they, they don't say anything because they're so surprised and dismayed before him. But then Joseph has his family come closer to him in a little, little family huddle. In order to reassure them, he says, I am Joseph, the one you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be grieved or angry with yourselves about it, he says in verse 5. Why not? Because God sent me before you. Three times, Joseph affirms that it was God who put Joseph in Egypt. Verse 5, verse 7, and verse 8. And why did God do this? Joseph is emphatic about this as well. He says, it was to save your lives, and it was to save the lives of many others. He expresses this in verse 7, verse 5, and verse 15. In verses 9 to 13, Joseph tells them that there are still years, still five years of famine left. So his brothers must go back to Canaan and tell Jacob about Joseph's splendor in Egypt. They must then hurry and bring Jacob down and bring their families and all their goods to Egypt to live in the land of Goshen. And there, Joseph says, he will provide for them all. Notice before they leave, though, there's more weeping from Joseph. Verse 14, he falls on Benjamin's neck, the neck of his brother, and he weeps and he kisses him. 
and the two weep together. And then in verse 15, it says, Joseph kisses all his brothers and he weeps on them. And then there's that final, final phrase in verse 15. Afterwards, his brothers talked with him. Can you imagine what that conversation was like? I'm sure it was a little bit awkward at first, but they sure had a lot to catch up on. It's been 22 years. But here we see Joseph is finally reconciled with his brothers. Though we learn later that the brothers are still a little afraid of Joseph after this. Turn actually to Genesis 50 for a moment. Genesis 50, the last chapter of the book of Genesis. Verses 15 to 21. This passage takes place 17 years after Joseph is first reconciled with his brothers in the passage we looked at. At this point, Jacob, the father, has died, and the whole family has buried him in Canaan. But look what happens when the after this burial with Joseph and his brothers. Verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, uh, your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Let's pause here just for a second. It's worth noting that Jacob probably never sent this message. This is something that the brothers are making up trying to protect protect themselves from Joseph, trying to get more sympathy from Joseph on their side. But they're asking Joseph to forgive them. How does Joseph respond? Let's read on. It says, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. We see that their request for forgiveness makes Joseph weep. He's weeping again. The brothers bow down again, and they proclaim themselves to be Joseph's servants. But Joseph only wants to comfort and reassure them. Twice Joseph says to them, do not be afraid. And then he asks, am I in God's place? He then says, you meant evil against me. I acknowledge that. What you intended was evil, and what you did was evil. But God meant it. And pay attention to what the it is there. The very evil that they intended and did, God meant that evil for good to bring about a life-preserving result. And then Joseph promises to provide for them and for their children. Let's jump back now to Genesis 45. I wanted you to see that little epilogue. Well, let's finish the narrative of the family coming down to Egypt. I'll do this again in summary fashion in Genesis 45 and 46. At the end of Genesis 45, Joseph sends his brothers home with wagons and food provisions and gifts. And when the brothers come home, 
they tell Jacob about Joseph being alive and being the ruler of Egypt. Jacob's spirit revives at hearing this news, and he consents to go down to Egypt. In chapter 46, the whole clan is moved down to Egypt, 70 people in all, and they're settled in the land of Goshen. Look at Genesis 46, verses 29 and 30. Genesis 46, 29 and 30, it says, Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, that you are still alive. In essence, Jacob is saying, I can die happy now, now that I've seen you again. This is a very, very bright and happy ending, is it not? And who is it that brought all this good about? Not Joseph. It was God. Now, finally, let's collect all that we've seen and try and answer some questions of interpretation. And we've got a bunch of them to look at. First question I want us to think about. Why does Joseph pretend not to know his brothers and instead put them through an ordeal? What do you think? We're not told specifically why in the text, right? And there are different ways we could maybe think that that is motivating Joseph's actions. But I think the best way is to understand that Joseph is testing his brothers. Joseph is testing his brothers. He actually says that, if you if you recall, back in that first passage we looked at. He says, I will test to see whether there is truth in you. And there's more. There is some truth to that. It has been many years since Joseph has seen his brothers. And the last time that they were with him, he saw that they were pretty sinful, pretty hateful, and pretty jealous of the favorite son of their father. So by putting them through this ordeal where he pretends not to know them and calls them spies and all that, Joseph is able to see, discern whether his brothers have changed or not in the intervening years. And you can see that they definitely have changed. The brothers express their guilt to one another regarding what they did to Joseph. They do not become resentful of Benjamin, even when Benjamin receives extra favor from Joseph. And the ringleader of their sin, Judah himself, He's the one who volunteers to be a sacrifice on Benjamin's behalf. Complete 180 of what Judah had been before. So, by testing his brothers, Joseph can definitely see that they've changed. But was it right for Joseph to test his brothers in this way? I mean, isn't that a little unkind? It's hard to say. Text does not commend or condemn Joseph for his actions. Perhaps Joseph was trying to protect his brother Benjamin. Perhaps Joseph needed to know how to best proceed in reconciling with his brothers, and so he needed this test. But one thing's for sure. We should not look at what Joseph did here as a model for how we reconcile with others. No, we're not to be putting people through these kinds of tests, making things hard for them. Joseph's case is unique, so let's not try and imitate him totally. Other question. Why does Joseph weep so much? At least four times he's crying. Man, Joseph, why do you cry so much? What do you think? 
well, he is an emotional guy. And we should note that this is much more common in ancient days. Today, we kind of look down, at least in American culture, kind of look down on public expressions of emotion, especially from men. Crying is seen as a sign of weakness. But back then, it was totally normal to express yourself this way. I mean, people are weeping all over the Bible. And these are not weak men. I mean, a lot of these guys are strong warriors. But why? Why did he get so emotional? Hmm. Yeah, he may have thought he would never see his family again, which shows if he weeps when he sees them. What does it show about Joseph? Yeah, it shows his compassion, shows his love for his brothers and his family. Every time he's interacting with them, he's weeping. He loves his family. And he has compassion on them. It's interesting that he weeps when his brothers talk about how guilty they feel about what they did to Joseph. Joseph's not weeping for himself. He's weeping on their behalf because he loves them. Another question. Does Joseph absolve his brothers of responsibility for their sin? When he says in Genesis 45, 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now, this statement is about emphasis. This is not absolving them of responsibility. We saw in Genesis 50, 20, he does acknowledge what you intended was evil. He's not saying you guys didn't sin or that they're not responsible for their sin. But he is emphasizing something. He's saying the more important intent and what happened was God's. God meant it for good. So don't trouble yourselves. Don't trouble yourselves about it. Speaking of Genesis 50, 20, Joseph says something else interesting in that context. What does Joseph mean when he says, do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? What does he mean by that statement? Yeah, go ahead. Yes, that's it, right? This is about vengeance. He doesn't say that specifically, but he says, am I in God's place? There's something that God's allowed to do that I'm not allowed to do. And what is that? Seek vengeance on the wrong that you did me. This is interesting because, again, Joseph is living in a time when the scriptures have not yet been written. And yet Joseph, again, understands this fundamental right of God. Vengeance is God's. He will repay. It is not the place of Joseph, or really any of us, to seek vengeance on behalf of the righteous. That's true. Human governments have an authority to punish evildoers, and that's established after the flood in Genesis 9. But still, Joseph understands that his responsibility is not to seek vengeance. His responsibility is instead what? When people have done him wrong, what is Joseph's responsibility? Love them, forgive them. And isn't that also a truth that is repeated again and again through the scriptures? And Jesus says it most explicitly. I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And part of loving people is forgiving them. And so that leads us to our next question. How was Joseph able to forgive his brothers the heartless sins that they did to him? They kidnapped him, they almost killed him, and they sold him as a slave in Egypt. Now, it's interesting that Reuben says God is giving us a reckoning for Joseph's blood. He says we essentially killed him 
So how can Joseph forgive them for that? Is not the answer what we said in the beginning? Joseph was content in God. He knew that he was a child of the covenant and that God was with him. Therefore, he was free to forgive his brothers. Joseph was surely aware of his own sinfulness and his own need for forgiveness before God. It's not mentioned explicitly in the text we read, but this is characteristic of the righteous throughout the scriptures, so we can assume it's true of Joseph. But what is most obvious is the third reason that we mentioned in the beginning. Joseph was confident that whatever happened to him was under God's sovereignty and that God would use it for good in the end. In fact, he saw how God used it for good. We see a great good, a great end for Joseph and his family. God provides for them all. Joseph is exalted in Egypt. The family is saved from famine. Thus, Joseph is able to forgive the terrible sin from his brothers and even seek their good. And of course, we should forgive in the same way for the same reasons. Now, someone will say, well, yeah, Joseph can forgive because it worked out so well for him. I mean, it's not working out so nicely for me. I'm still suffering from the sin that people have done to me. How can I forgive? Well, it's true. You may not yet have seen the dramatic turnaround that we see in the life of Joseph. I mean, he went clearly from suffering into blessing. But like we said last week, when we talked about reversals, you will see that change eventually. Your suffering will be turned into blessing. If not in this life, than in the life to come. And when that happens, not only will you be abundantly blessed, but you will see how what you suffered was being used by God for good. But because you haven't experienced that yet, that's a truth you have to embrace by faith. Don't resent those. Don't hate those who have sinned against you even in terrible ways. Because Romans 8.28 says, God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and for those who are called according to his purpose. You know that even the sins that others do against you, even those things that hurt, even those things that are terrible, heinous, shameful in the sight of God, they will be used by God for your good and for the good of others. Say more about that in a little bit. Two other questions. Why was God committed to preserving the family of Joseph? Again, it goes back to the covenant and really the character of God. God is a loving God. He is a generous God. He's the faithful God. But he also entered into covenant with Abraham and Abraham's seed. Thus, he was going to bring to pass what he promised. God had promised Abraham and his seed a land multiplied descendants, and worldwide blessing. Those things had to come to pass, and the famine threatened that. Therefore, God had to provide. God was motivated to provide for Joseph and for all of Joseph's family. It was just God keeping covenant, showing that covenant love. But perhaps this raises one last question. Why didn't God just cancel the famine? Couldn't he provide a deliverance in an easier way? I mean, the way he chose just resulted in a bunch of trials for everybody, Joseph especially. So 
why did God choose to do it this way? And I'll answer this question has several different parts. It involves the brokenness of the world, the consequences of sin, God's purposes for trillions of individuals all being fulfilled at the same time, those who are already living and those who would come to live in the future. But the main answer to the question of why did God choose to do it this way is because this way God determined would give God maximum glory. This way would give God maximum glory because, this is something I said before, but it's worth reiterating, there is no greater good in the universe than for God to glorify himself. There's no greater good for any one of you or for any person in the world than to see God's glory put on display. And when I say glory, I'm talking about the greatness of God, all the attributes of God, who he is, who he is put on display. That is the greatest good that any person can experience. Jesus actually says this himself in a verse I often quote, John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. No, eternal life is not just about longevity. It's about quality. True life, Jesus says, is knowing God, knowing him, having a relationship with him, seeing who he actually is and how great he is. And because that is the greatest good, because God's glory is the greatest treasure, it is better, listen to this, it is better that God reveal his glory to us through hardship than that we experience ease and do not see God's glory. It's better that God reveal his glory to us through hardship than for us to experience ease and not see God's glory. You know, there's a reason that Joseph calls what God did in all this a great deliverance. Consider how they would have missed out on this display of God's greatness and God's glory, God's faithfulness, God's worth, God's power, if none of these trials ever happened. God is fundamentally good. He's good to his people. But the greatest way that God is good is by revealing himself to his people so that they can enjoy him, so they can have relationship with him, and so that they can become like him. So all these ordeals for Jacob, for Joseph, for the other brothers, they had to happen. The famine had to happen. Joseph's imprisonment had to happen. Joseph's slavery had to happen. God wanted all of us to see his power, his faithfulness, his loyal love. And do you realize that God is doing the same thing with the trials and even the sins that you are suffering from other people in your life? It's about God revealing his glory and goodness to you. Do you realize how God means these things for good, for your good, to cause you to trust God, to cause you to love God, cause you to be satisfied in God and cling to him as your foremost treasure? You see, we've been looking at the life of Joseph over the last four lessons, but Joseph is not the hero. Not the hero, ultimately. The hero is God. 
just as he's the true hero of every biblical narrative and really the hero of every one of our lives. He's the one who's bringing about the good. He's the one who is worthy. He's the one who's worthy of all praise. Romans 11.36 uses, a, I think, a helpful phrase, speaking of God. For from him and to him and through him are all things. Brothers and sisters, it is all about God in the end because he is so good. He is showing us again and again in the scriptures his glory. And he's doing the same thing in our lives, whether we realize it or not. And did he not do this in the greatest way with Jesus and the cross? This was the greatest injustice. This was a righteous man experiencing the worst sins that a person could do to another person. To crucify the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, who never did anything wrong, who was only full of love for his people, they killed him. And they did a lot more than that. He actually, our Lord, he took the sins of his people with him on the tree and he paid them off all in full. Do you see that it was the same thing in a much greater way that Joseph was experiencing? The sins of others against a righteous man, they were bringing about a great good. Even the salvation of all people who believe in God, who believe and are in Christ. Similarly, God is accomplishing great good in your lives, even through the sins of others against you. You can trust in the sovereignty of God because of how he displays it again and again in the scriptures. God is revealing his glory and doing good to his people. So what does this mean for us? What are some ways that we can apply the truths we've seen in the life of Joseph and that we've seen in our lesson today? I'll give you a few questions to stimulate your thinking. Hopefully you see there are many applications from this lesson. Here are a few, for, few thoughts for you to think about. First, have you humbled yourself before God? Do you believe that seeing his glory is better than experiencing ease in this world? None of us like suffering. And if we're honest, sometimes we would prefer just easy, no problem life. Do you see that beholding God's glory through suffering, through hardship, even through the sins of others, is better than a life of ease? This is not normal for the world's thinking. This is not normal for your flesh. You need to renew your mind with the truths of Scripture. You need to embrace a totally new way of thinking. Have you embraced that biblical mindset that is opposed to the flesh? Second question. What are some ways that you've seen You've already seen God reveal his glory and goodness through the trials and even the sins of others against you in your life. I trust that you have already seen this. How did those things turn out for good? I'll just give you one personal example. When I was attending Rutgers there in New Jersey as an undergraduate, I was part of a campus organization along with Emma and uh, s some others. And uh, just trying to encourage the, the group people I met there and the leadership of the group to 
get more deep into biblical teaching, to talk about sanctification, to talk about the gospel in full. But to my great shock, I was confronted by the leaders of that campus ministry and told that I was being divisive in their group and that if I didn't get along with what they intended to do, that I should leave the organization. Essentially, they, they kicked me out. And Emma eventually was essentially kicked out as well. This was a terrible, terrible, terrible shock, and I think a great sin that I experienced. I mean, these were Christian leaders saying, we don't want, we don't want to go deeper into biblical truth, and if you want that, then you don't belong here. I was so discouraged. I was so hurt. I was so disheartened. But you know what? God used it for good. I mean, not only to mature me and to cause me to um, grow closer to Christ, but as a result of being shunned from this organization, we, we started our own Bible study. We started our own Bible study at the Rutgers campus, and some different people got to attend and we got to share the gospel with them. And one of the people who attended, and you remember he attended Calvary for some time, Andrew Yu, partially through the Bible study, he came to faith. He was saved. That would never have happened if we didn't get kicked out of that organization. God was using it for good. So how has that been true also in your life? Do you believe and expect that this is always what God is doing? If you belong to Christ, he is always working everything for your good and his glory, even the sins of others. One more question. Do you forgive others? Do you forgive others in your heart for their sins against you because you know that even their sins are ordained by God for your good and his glory? We should be a forgiving people. If we believe in the sovereignty of God, if we believe in the goodness of God, we should be a forgiving people. Are you withholding forgiveness? You ought to forgive all people in your heart for even their sins against you because God is good and sovereign. As to outward reconciliation, yes, often there needs to be confession of sin and repentance from that other person. But are you ready for that? Do you desire that? Are you like the father of the prodigal son who, when he sees the person far off on the road to repentance, he runs to that person? Are you trying to be reconciled with those who've sinned against you? Are you glad? Are you so happy when they approach you in confession and repentance? Are you free with your forgiveness and reconciliation to them? Do you intend not just to forgive them, but to rebuild the relationship with them? Do you pray for their good? Do you pray God will bless them? Do you pray God will bring them to repentance? Because that's the heart of God. Not only on display in Joseph's life, but in the life of our Lord. It's because of God's kindness toward those who sinned against him that you and I are saved. So do we display a similar kindness? Do we long to display that kind of kindness? 
because we love others. Questions or comments about what you've heard today? I hope you will meditate on those questions and I hope that you will be thinking about, continuing to think about the account of Joseph given to us. Ultimately, it is an account about God. It is an account about God's wonderful love and faithfulness, his glory put on display for us. And that's all for this week. Next week, we finish the book of Genesis. We're going to take a look at... <clears throat> Take a look at the prophecy of Jacob before he dies about the future destinies of his sons. And as we look at that, we're going to see another very poignant prophecy about the coming seed of promise, even the Messiah. If any other questions or comments about today's lesson, be sure to email me. Let's close in prayer. God, we thank you for this account how you revealed yourself to the world and to us, not only in these events, but in having them recorded for us. God, how, how we would know you so little if you didn't reveal yourself, if you didn't write these things down for us. But you did. That was part of your kindness to us. Just as Ephesians says, you revealed the mystery of your will. Thank you for revealing yourself to us, not only through the word, but by your spirit, opening our eyes to see you and to believe in you. Lord God, we confess there is no good in this world compared with you. You are our treasure. You are our greatest good. But how easily we get distracted from that. And how easily, Lord, when we start thinking fleshly, we start saying to ourselves, I cannot forgive what that person did to me. Oh, Lord, how far, how far from your heart such an attitude is. How twisted, how foolish is such thinking. Lord, renew our minds. Give us such a confidence in your sovereignty. Help us to believe by faith that you are always doing your people good. And by that, God, enable us, cause us to obey you and forgive others from the heart and to reconcile with others when it is even remotely possible. Oh, Lord God, I pray that you would accomplish that in the lives of the people of Calvary and any who are listening today, we know, God, that we forgive because you've forgiven us. And if we can't forgive, it's probably a sign that we're not forgiven. I pray for any who are in that such a state, who are not forgiven before you, that they would come. They would come and repent. They'd believe in Jesus Christ as the only Savior. And thereby that they would inherit everlasting life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all. Seeing you again next time.